This is Carolina Business Review. Major support provided by the South Carolina Ports, the state's most significant strategic asset, positively influencing economic development, job growth, the environment, and our communities. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their families, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university, focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. Sonoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and services, with more than 300 operations in 35 countries. Few times a year, we like to convene what we call insiders. Those are leaders from across the region who have a different point of view of maybe what is behind the curtain or what is inside baseball, so to speak. I am Chris William and welcome again to the most widely watched and the longest running program on Carolina business, policy and public affairs seen across the Carolinas for more than 30 years now. Thanks for supporting it. We will start to unpack things like the economy, like inflation, like economic development and all things in between. And we start right now. Major funding also by Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association, and Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation on which our communities improve and grow. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Christopher Chung from the Economic Development Partnership of North Carolina, Susie Shannon of the South Carolina Council on Competitiveness, Donald Thompson from the Diversity Movement, and Sarah Fawcett of the United Way of the Midlands. Well, I am uh, personally just thrilled to have you all. Have you all ever been in the studio together? Mm, not just all, time, not just, at the same time. Not just, at the same time. Just on no, Zoom. First time for me. Any surprises with anyone? You can you can tell us. Anybody surprised? Don, Don's it? taller than I thought. He was. <laughs> <laughs> He's more handsome. More handsome. Yeah, I'll yeah. take it. Well, you know what? Truly, thank you for for coming together. This is very exciting, and it's not lost on me that you all made the trip to Charlotte to do this and that's that's a commitment for you for the day as well and I'd like to welcome you all back to some normalcy. Uh, Don we'll start with you and we'll start with sure. uh, we'll start with the uh, the economy. Let's unpack things like jobs and inflation. Um, the inflation number in, and I know none of you are economic uh, uh, professors but you do have a, a your your finger on the pulse here. Don, how long do you think this inflation is going to be felt, and and is it going to be more debilitative than maybe we think? So I think we have a long haul challenge, right? And anytime you're looking at the job loss, anytime you're coming out of a pandemic, anytime you're looking at fear, uncertainty, and doubt from leadership, all of a sudden there's no magic pill that's going to make that go away. Because when you're having tens of thousands of people lose their job, now all of a sudden that filters into the rest of the economy. So the short answer to me is we've got to really tighten our belts for the long term. And I'm looking at 12 to 18 months of a little bit of pain, quite frankly. Yeah, you think you think that short? I, I think before we can start to see the other side yeah. is, okay. is what I would describe. And a specific example I would say is people are looking at budgeting very differently, right? Whether it's their real estate footprint, whether it's their hiring versus using outside uh, consulting and kind of 10 for their business. So they're making more strategic decisions based on a longer term uh, point of pain uh, than I've seen in a little while. Susie, do you have models here that, that say longer, more painful, less painful, not as bad? I mean, what do you think? 
Um, so I think we're going to see, at least in the near term, a, a bit of a tightening up, and that will be painful. I, we're already seeing that with some companies throttling their marketing budgets. Those tend to be the budgets that get socked first. Mm -hmm. um, and we're already beginning to see, you know, uh, a little more scrutiny, uh, requests for sponsorships for events, mm -hmm. um, things that would typically come out of a marketing budget. So I think they're already beginning to get into a protective hoarding mode because if there's one thing they know they're going to have to continue to spend money on and invest in is their workforce because we're still seeing ramped up hiring and we're also seeing uh, pay rates go up, uh, quality of life issues, sort of things that are attached to compensation and fringe that may not directly translate into cash but uh, to the employee but it is you know an expense to the employer. Sarah, the not to say that not a lot of businesses and people are not inflation sensitive, but I got to think the nonprofit industry probably braces for these kind of. Uh, oh, sure. Right? So, yeah. what are you seeing? So, we actually have been seeing uh, donations and, and gifts go up to start to creep up towards pre pandemic levels on the whole. Now, having said that, a lot of organizations, a lot of nonprofits are looking at other sources of revenue whether that be having some type of facility that they rent out and actually having that kind of income stream or just looking at looking at their at their donors differently doing more analytical research on their donors and what they want and then also looking at more private and public grants i mean that's becoming mm -hmm. a, a larger and larger part of all of our yeah. uh, of all of our budgets mm -hmm. and all of our revenue planning yeah chris what about the paul on economic development around inflation uh, well, first off, it's great to be back. Wonderful to see you. Uh, it really is nice, and, and like you said, a feeling of normalcy uh, has been restored by having us all in the studio. Uh, economic development, if you look at our, our limited view of the world, activity is still very strong, right? And you've got companies that we're talking to right now that are proposing to still create thousands of new jobs. You've got a, a still a very tight labor market, which, of course, continues to apply pressure on wages, which is one of those biggest drivers of inflationary trends. And I don't see that letting up anytime soon. I, I think some of the recent headlines Lines, despite the tech industry slashing a lot of jobs, I think most employers, to Susie's point, are still investing in attracting and retaining workforce. They've fought so hard in the past few years to retain workers in a very, very challenging labor market for employers that I don't think they're going to be very quick to cut them mm -hmm. and let them go, lest that they have to ramp back up and, and go back to fight for that same talent. And so I think in that kind of environment where you're not only we're still trying to attract a lot of employers that are going to create a ton of jobs. We've still got all these other employers that have announced thousands, tens of thousands of new jobs that they're creating. That continuous pressure on uh, employee availability, I think, is going to be one of those contributing factors to inflation. But that's a good thing in, in the sense that this recession is not going to come with those very, very steep job losses like what we saw with the Great Recession. So that's good for the average worker who's still probably going to have some options there that they wouldn't in a much more challenging economic period. So when we blow this out, and I, let's just dump it on the table for yeah. everyone to jump in on this, Don, um, are we going to have a recession without a recession in jobs? A uh, complex question, what I'll say to it is... What's your gut? I, I'm not sure, but here's the thing that I'm seeing, right? Is that people and, and CEOs that I work with in particular are really struggling with that blend of empathy and economics. And so they're thinking through it on a daily basis, right? If I lay off 2,000 people, what does that mean to my diversity, equity, inclusion programming, mm -hmm. right? If I lay off folks now, what does it look to my community support and the organizations that I gave to, right? Can I give $100,000 to an organization when I've cut 500 jobs, 
right? So they're trying to balance all of the economic drivers together, and it's, it's quite frankly, it's kind of difficult. The upshot is that we're still seeing growth in overall markets, right, that leaders are chasing. And so that long-term fuel, right, to Chris, your point, I, I think is gonna keep some of the employee retention, mm -hmm. right? Because people are dealing with current pain, but they're still striving for that three to five year outlook. Can, can mm -hmm. they hold on to jobs though? Can they be sympathetic? Will, will leaders of organizations be sympathetic if the, if the calculus on revenue changes and all of a sudden you're facing, well, you know, it kind of comes down to A or B. I want to I want to retain these workers, but my revenue is dropping and I've got not just shareholders, but maybe private equity owners. I, it, what I will tell you is it is a very, very high octane conversation in the boardroom right now. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. Uh, I'm fortunate in that I work with and counsel and, and partner with a lot of different CEOs on a lot of subjects and they're wrestling with it. And so the reason why I say it depends is because it really depends on whether a company has the cash in the bank, the long-term stability of the CEO to plan for the future, or if it's a leader that's already under duress for other reasons and they have to chase the bottom line right now. Mm -hmm. And so there is some, some differences there. Yeah. And I think there's still some PTSD left over from 2021 when we had the great resignation. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it was a it was just a brawl for talent at that point. That's right, yeah. And so when I think about that, if I were faced with that choice, which, I, which I'm not, fortunately, but in general, when you're faced with that choice as a CEO or a board, mm -hmm. it's do I want to take that risk of laying off employees mm -hmm. knowing that this recession, because of lots of factors that we've talked about around the table, probably will not last as long as the Great right. Recession did. Yeah. And, and do I want to take that risk that I then can't hire people back as mm -hmm. quickly as I'm going to need them? Yeah. And no playbook, because it's unlike the 2008 recession, it's unlike the 90s, it's unlike the 80s. Um, so I think companies are having to create the playbook as they go, mm -hmm. and they're mm -hmm. having to adapt to these variable market conditions That's right. that are really pressuring them right now. You know, you bring up a good point. Uh, this whole idea, and I don't, want, I don't want to get too spongy about this, but yeah. the spiritual... But the spiritual nature of what you just said, you know, there are 40-year-olds running companies that have not experienced really 2020 wasn't a slowdown. It was a flash crash or a flash recession. Sure. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of people that are mature and running corporations that have never experienced a recession. Is that, does that play into this at all? Talk about a brand new playbook, brand new day. Anyone? Or you just don't want to touch it? <laughs> I'll jump in on it. Look, I, I think that is true, right, on its face. But I think that business leaders in general are really looking for how to create long-term growth. And so they're trying to determine whether or not the short-term impact, the short-term pain, is gonna limit their ability to compete globally in the future. And so that continual ebb and flow, I don't think is a direct correlation to experience of a recession, but really how are you navigating the current jungle, right? Because that's really all that matters, right? And a lot of time experience does, but this new paradigm is really important because when we look at past recessions, we knew why they happened, right? The mortgage crisis was the trigger, right? This has so many different elements to it that I think the experience actually may hinder because there is a new mm -hmm. way that we're thinking about talent, a new way we're thinking about the economy, a new way we're thinking about job growth. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Please, and please. those 42-year-old those CEOs are not only approaching this economy um, with sort of that lack of maturity and historical precedent, but they're, they're, they're also bringing with them their own generational mm -hmm. aspects mm -hmm. that 
are going to give them a, a little bit of a different perspective. I think that's why we're seeing a lot more pressure, not just global, but around things like ESG, mm -hmm. sustainability, DEI. And, and not only are the, these sort of uh, different generational, cross-generational CEOs bringing that into the boardroom, right. um, sometimes they're bringing it, if not voluntarily, kicking and screaming because their workforce is mm -hmm. demanding it. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about this before, right? It's never been easy to be the CEO or leader of any organization, but it's it's even harder today because there's just this wealth of complex factors that any CEO, 40-year-old, 60-year-old, 20-year-old, they just have to navigate this new set of acronyms and issues that are really affecting how a company is perceived in their marketplace, by their investors, by their customers, and of course, by their own employees. So it's just, it's a very challenging landscape and I don't see it getting any easier for organizational leaders going forward. I don't, I don't want this to be a leading question, but something you said, yeah, sure. Chris and Susie, we were talking before the program, the economic development and the capital investment in both states has been epically large, and that's probably an understatement, that uh, economic development in North Carolina had the biggest year ever, South Carolina, not just the biggest year ever, but I mean, blew two. it out. <laughs> yeah, it, awesome. it, it, I mean, it's almost yeah. scary success. So will that kind of success, and this is, this is my term, decouple the Carolinas from any any serious felt felt recession that maybe the rest of the country will feel, as you talked about jobs. Are there so many people looking for jobs, there's not going to be a, a jobless recession, and or maybe there won't even be a recession like a recession is known in other parts of the country because of these factors we've talked about. Well, I think nationally, uh, to Sarah's point, the predictions have all generally been for a relatively mild recession and a relatively quick bounce back from whatever that trough looks like this time around. And then when I think you look at the Carolinas, I can't speak for South Carolina, Sarah and Susie probably can, but North Carolina, most economists would say we're, we're relatively well insulated, partly because we continue to be this beacon for talent. People keep moving here, which mm -hmm. contributes to economic activity, which makes it easier for employers to expand here because they have that deeper mm -hmm. pool of talent. So we have some really good fundamentals in North Carolina and, and presumably as well in South Carolina that while it may not insulate us entirely from the effects of a recession, it's going to be felt a little bit less intensely uh, in, in a state like North Carolina, which is continuing to grow economically and through population. And mm -hmm. that's a good position to be in because, again, not every one of the 50 states is sitting mm -hmm. in that type of spot. Yeah. And in South, excuse me, in South Carolina, you know, historically recruiting those you know, the big buffalo, um, it was always build it and, and they will come, right? So you build out the infrastructure, you recruit mm -hmm. the companies, and then the workers will follow. Um, even pre-COVID, you know, we sort of saw that flopped where uh, the companies were making their primary siting decisions on where the workforce was already located. Uh -huh. And even though I feel like we, uh, South Carolina is is quite a bit insulated, um, as you know, Chris alluded to North Carolina as well, be because of the robust economic activity. I mean, it's amazing that not only did we have a record announcement last year, but then we beat our own record within <laughs> yeah. the same quarter. Pretty nice. I, I mean, awesome. that's, that's. Yeah. And you talk about the Redwood Project down in, in the yes. low country, along yes. with the BMW with the BMW Pretty announcement. Amazing. And so, but of course that, you know, is all uh, geared toward one economic industry vertical, right, manufacturing. We still have a number of, mm -hmm. of economic drivers within the state that we need to make sure that also mm -hmm. cultivated and, and nurtured as well. I think we're, where we're probably gonna see a bit of the pinch, if we had to kind of look on the negative side of it, is that labor force participation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, how do, how do we, hit all of these things in tandem, whether it's infrastructure development, whether it's uh, 
economic recruitment, mm -hmm. it's workforce development, yep. and you know when we've got prime age people um, a little bit reticent about yeah. jumping into the workforce or staying in the workforce, particularly where we have aging populations mm -hmm. and where we have uh, tax structure that encourages mm -hmm. um, net migration of aging populations, okay. we're gonna feel the pinch, particularly in about five or 10 years. And that's the, the statistic that I wish we would talk more about. Labor force labor, participation. Labor yep, force participation. Absolutely. Yep. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's, it's great to talk about a low unemployment rate. Mm -hmm. Terrific, it's 3.3, I think. 3.6 national. Yeah, yeah and 3.3. But, but the devil's on the denominator, yeah. right? That's a good way to say it, yeah. I, I wish we could put, and maybe through venues like this, we can do it, is put more emphasis on that labor force participation rate, because we've gotta get that up. Yeah. If the growth that both of our but states are seeing, but how do you do that? Is, is, well, so, so childcare is one of those structural mm -hmm. issues that's keeping. You know, there's a third of the workforce that could be seeking employment that's sitting on the sidelines. To to Susie's point, they're they're reticent for some reason, and childcare is coming up. That that's all of a yeah. sudden become a very very strong focus for a so, lot of organizations. So that falls on the state house in Columbia and Jones Street in, in Raleigh, or I'm sorry, the well, state there house are in Columbia federal things that can. So it's a so childcare. The issue there is both supply, right? A lot of people dropped out of that profession during the pandemic, and not as many childcare centers have reopened post-pandemic, so that just constrains supply altogether. And then you go to rural areas, you're lucky if you even have a child care provider. In urban areas, the cost is the bigger issue. Or so, reliable transportation. Yeah, absolutely. So the federal government, <laughs> right. it, it's, it's the demand is, is going to be constant and growing. The supply area is where federal policy, state policy, perhaps even local policy can assist, as well as private sector support and recognizing that child care is one of those barriers keeping them from getting the employees that they need. And when we look at, um, so United Way does a self-sufficiency standard across the state. Midlands or United Way? United Way, well, no, United yes. Way in South Carolina. Okay. All of us get together with our state association. We come up with this self-sufficiency index. And it looks at, you know, based on your family structure, what does it take to, what do you have to earn in order to be self-sufficient with no mm -hmm. government supports? Mm -hmm. And the way, that you, the way that we use this data is to say, where is the best leverage? Is it in housing supports? Is it in food security? No, it's in childcare. The number one- By, by and large? By and large, mm -hmm. is that if, if we can address childcare costs through public-private partnerships, mm -hmm. through public policy, that would give you the best bang for your buck in getting someone to be self-sufficient. Okay, let, let me ask this, and I don't know that this gets to the point you made, Sarah, but if the states, if, if North and South Carolina General Assemblies now seem to be pretty close about Medicaid, accepting Medicaid dollars, does that change some of the job and, and, and early pre-K type of help? I know, I know it's healthcare dollars, but does it free up some other resources within a, a state budget to do that, do you think? Do you think that would be helpful? I think it depends on how it's structured because if it's going to be Medicaid dollars, we're talking about folks that aren't Medicaid eligible that need that child care support as well. Um, you know, you have a lot of folks that fall, I guess it's a gap yeah. where they don't qualify for most or any state support. They're making just over mm -hmm. the limits mm -hmm. in terms of earnings for qualifications. So those are the people right there that are spending a third or more on childcare. On child yeah. And it's both the cost of childcare, but also the availability. Mm -hmm. yes. yeah. right? Absolutely. And, and Especially in rural areas yeah. of the yeah. state. Right, yeah. mm -hmm. and to your, to your point, and then now you throw in if you're uh, parents and you have kids that have neurodiversity uh, issues or different things like that, mm -hmm. intellectual disabilities. And so one of the things that I think is critical is we haven't educated the business community and our legislature on the linkage 
right, between the impact of childcare and that employee engagement. You don't think engagement. they know that by now? I think we know things which is different than things we care about and things that are above the fold if we want to use an old newspaper thing. And so certainly we can know about things, but I think pressure and then continual education. If you think about marketing and it takes 12 times to see something <laughs> for somebody clicks on something, yeah. right? Well, politicians and business leaders aren't different than that, right? Okay. So there has to be a steady drumbeat of education and linkage, right, between the goals that they're trying to and set. And I think folks have heard about these issues, mm -hmm. whether that's housing avail availability, affordability, whether that's childcare availability, but they haven't necessarily drawn that linkage to how it's an economic development issue and that's how right. it affects mm -hmm. our economic competitiveness as a state and the that's ability right. of our businesses to attract mm -hmm. and retain workforce. Yeah. That's the linkage that I think Don is saying that's got to be a lot stronger. And housing's probably coming closer than the child care and transportation because you are seeing more emphasis, more support, both at the local regional level in particular on affordable housing because when we start talking about affordable housing, right, so we've moved from the nomenclature from public housing to affordable housing to workforce housing. Mm -hmm. yeah. So now that we're sort of that's tilting right. into that workforce housing yeah. nomenclature, I think that's when you're going to see the rest of that conversation and those beneficial movements. So do you think that it. there will be meaningful movement in what workforce housing looks like? I think we're already seeing that at the local level. And of course, everything is, really? you know, yeah. mayors rule the world. Uh, <laughs> a lot of good things happen yeah, local. Right. <laughs> so, <awesome>. so <laughs> Mayors you know. think they rule the world. <laughs> And I've never been a mayor. Uh, but. Let's zoom out to something else, and I want to get this in. We've got about three or four minutes left. You know, the Carolinas now, uh, the budgets of South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, uh, not just one or two, but several billion dollars in, in excess, in uh, surplus. It's a good thing. And all of a sudden, second year in a row, at least the second year. Um, do we, uh, do, do the, the politicos, do those that lead in public policy look pretty smart now for sitting on that cash? Do they? Is my question. And will that help us? <laughs> will that help us in the next two or three years, whatever the economy? I, I mean, um, certainly being fiscally responsible is sound governance, right? So that's a good thing. But there is also the construct of what are you doing uh, with those dollars, right, to meet the needs of your constituencies, right? And that comes back to whether it's childcare, whether it's infrastructure, whether it's broadband in rural communities. Mm -hmm. If you have the dollars, but then you're not doing anything that is transformational with them, then I, I don't know that I want to give you an A plus for just having the dollars, is, is, is would be my opinion on that. Sarah, what do you think? Well, I certainly would like to see the, for obvious reasons in my industry, we'd like to see more public-private partnerships mm. using those excess dollars. Because like what would that look like? I mean, in a child care initiative okay. or in, in affordable housing yeah. or, or, or workforce housing, attainable housing, things of that nature, because, the, you know, we've got this, it, it, it's got to be for things because the, the dollars may not always be there. Mm -hmm. And so it can't be for things that are going to require a long sustainability. But what are some things that we can get going that That's can right. have a sustainability mm -hmm. plan, whether it's around child care or housing? And I, and I do agree with you, Susie. I think that housing is also um, the other big issue. If you are stable in your house, you are going to be stable in your job, stable in your education. I mean, that's really the foundation of everything. Mm -hmm. So, and, and let's be real too, when we talk about the surplus and how we're defining that, you know, the, um, the, the federal appropriations that, that are, you know, have gone into this, being invested into the states or currently in the process of flowing into the states, mm -hmm. that's, that's also added to, you know, some of those local regional 
um, state revenue buckets, mm -hmm. and that's, that's not going to be around forever. There is mm -hmm. a shelf life on those dollars, mm -hmm. and so I think the aim is back to the public-private in having a say in how those dollars are invested so we can have maximum impact because, you know, they're probably short-run infusions, but how do we get long-term meaningful mm -hmm. impact out of that? We, we have about a minute left, and Donna, you've done a lot of work on this, and I don't want to let the program go without. Oh, sure. uh, DEI initiatives, are they going to lose momentum if economies get tough? So, yes, there is a significant risk of that, but those that are highly committed will weather that storm and be more effective and efficient with those dollars. Those that are using DEI as a checkbox, it's an easy answer to find some funds around the edges. So it really is a function of not size of organization, but the commitment level of organization. Really, resources don't play into that? A company with obviously more resources wants to lean well, into Well, if you think about, um, if I'm going to work and I'm packing my lunch and money's tight, peanut butter and jelly might be what I'm having. If money's a little bit better, I might have a turkey sandwich, but I'm still gonna have a sandwich. And so the focus on DEI doesn't have to change because you have to belt tighten. It means you have to be more efficient. But there are companies that are using it as an excuse to do something they really didn't want to do. So maybe not as culturally deep. That's exactly right. Okay. Because anytime we want to do something and we're committed okay. to, that's where innovation lives. Right? And you can do things on a low budget very smartly okay. if you're committed to getting something done. L last word, thank you. We're yeah. out of time, Susie. I know you want to, we're going to keep you all together for next week. But okay. thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, so glad to see you guys. You. I'm glad we're yeah. back together. Uh, on, on this program next week, we're going to almost stay right where we are and talk about something, oh, easy. The loss of trust. <laughs> I'm not laughing at it, but it will be an interesting dialogue. We hope you stay with us and hope you have a good weekend. Good night. Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, Sunoco, High Point University, Colonial Life, the South Carolina Ports Authority, and by viewers like you. Thank you. For more information, visit carolinabusinessreview.org.